We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, Robin. Cheryl, we're back again. We are. Do we need to introduce ourselves again? I am Cheryl Broderson. And Robin, well, you know, here's a little story. I, I'm Robin Gunn, and that's how you can find me online. However, when my dad saw that I was going to be published, my very first devotion, I, they paid me $10 for a little Aww, devotion yes. many years ago, and I wrote down Robin Gunn, and I'd been married about five years, and my daddy, son of a Kentucky coal miner who was so happy for me, said, you've been a Jones a lot longer than you've been a Gunn. I think you got to get a Jones in there. Aww. So I wrote on that first form, how do you want your name to appear in print? And I wrote Robin Jones Gunn to honor my dad, and then... It kind of stuck. But, you know, we it's easier just to say Robin Gunn, so yes. we'll use both. It's but, fine. You know, it's you know Cheryl. The other day I was talking to Brian and I said, um, you know, something about, you know, when I was at home, you know, one of those traumatic events that we all have from our youth. And he said, yes, but you've been married to me for two thirds <laughs> of your life. And I said, yes, but sometimes I still live in the first third. Yes, you are still a bit of the Cheryl Smith. That's Broderson. right. Cheryl Smith Broderson. I love it. So well, we're here to not talk about us. That's right. But you're you're going to love, 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 love uh, the woman that I have today. And I don't even know how I discovered her. I, I think I was on Amazon and I like to peruse biographies. And anytime I see, you know, anything, you know, Christian or, you know, Jesus or that, I'm like, yes. wait. I want this one. Who is this yes. person? And that's how I discovered Donala Dina Cameron. And, you know, here's my thought. Why didn't I know this woman before? How? And we have thought that many times. Yes. Yes. How did I not know about you? But that's why we do this. Yes. Because she's such a woman worth knowing. And I didn't know her. And I was so excited to meet her and know her. And I'm like, her story has got to be told. I agree. Yeah. And that's how we feel so much huh, about these women that we're doing. It's true. And for them to be able to be those role models for us, because we need the encouragement. We do. And we need to see how we they do. were trailblazers. And, and boy. That's the case today. Yes. Oh, absolutely. In such a unique way. Um, so her father was a man named Alan Cameron, and he uh, came from Scotland. But he heard that there was property in New Zealand and better opportunities. And by this time, he had five daughters, and he was struggling to support all five daughters. Now, he had parents and in-laws that lived in uh, Scotland, and he had brothers, but he wanted to forge his own way. So he decided he would move to New Zealand. Wow. So he moved. What a journey. Such a journey. So he bought a sheep ranch in New Zealand, and it was doing really, really well. So he saved up his money, but he only had enough to send for his wife and four of his daughters. So one of the daughters, Isabella, had to be left in Scotland, which which actually was such a comfort to the grandparents. They were like, we'll raise her. Don't worry about this. Um, But what I don't think Alan or his wife Anna realized when they left Isabella is that neither of them would ever, ever see her again. So it's kind of sad. Yes, that part is sad. It is. So his sheep ranch was doing really, really well. And he was there with Annie, Helen, uh, Cameron, and Jesse. Those were his four daughters. But in New Zealand, his family expanded to include a son, Alan, 
Jr. You know, so funny <laughs> how often they name their children after themselves. And then a daughter who was their youngest child, and they named her Donna Dina McKenzie Cameron. And she was born July 26, 1869. Now, I find this it was so interesting. Brian and I were arguing nicely. Brian's my husband about how you would pronounce Donaldina, and I said Donaldina, and he's like, "No, Donaldina." And so we kept going back and forth over hmm. how you pronounce this. And so finally, we concluded. Brian says, "Didn't she go by Dolly?" And I said, "Yes." He said, there we go. "Just call her Dolly," <laughs> which is so much easier. So even though the sheep ranch was doing really well financially, and he was getting a lot of money. At this time, Alan heard of all these opportunities that were bigger and better in California. So he took his wife and his six children and he moved to California and he bought a ranch in the San uh, Gabriel Valley, which at this time, because we're talking, you know. Yeah, what eight, year is it? Well, she's uh, Dolly's like little, like she's maybe three. So we're talking like 1872. I mean, just not too yeah. long after the Civil yeah. War, right? California just being that's right developed, right? Not yeah. even developed, just... You know, on a side note, um, about that time, uh, Brian's great-great-grandfather, Cecil, Lord Cecil Hake, moved over from Scotland also and really? bought the Stagecoach Inn in um, Newberry Park. It's a historical that's site am- today. Yes, yes, yes. That's amazing. Isn't that fun? A uh, little known fact. But um, he came, but the San Gabriel Valley was so remote. And his wife, for the most part, was alone with the children all day long while he was out, you know, caring with the sheep. And it was a hard, hard life for her. There was drought. There were things that they had never experienced in New Zealand and they had never experienced in Scotland because Scotland, they had family, but now they have no family. They're isolated in this place. And one day these bandits rode up on their horses and demanded whiskey of her. And she was beside herself, you know, trying to protect her children and didn't know what to do. Well, the life was so hard that after one year, um, Dolly's mother died. And so Dolly at this point is somewhere around four or five years old when her mother died. Her older two sisters, Annie and Helen, they were 20 and 18 at the time, set to the task of taking care of the house and raising Dolly. And every night they would gather all the family together. This is the sisters initiating it. The the father was a part of it for scripture reading. And they would read Charles Dickens or um, Sir Walter Scott out loud. Then they would taste of the homeland yes, for them. Then they would sing together and they memorized poetry, recited psalms, and sometimes in unison. And so they got Dolly to memorize and to really, really love the Lord. Her one sister, Helen, her favorite thing in the whole wide world was to tell Bible stories. She just loved uh, to tell them to the whole family, especially to Dolly, and let them just come alive. And it was actually awesome. through <laughs> Helen that. Dolly became aware of the constant presence of Jesus. Because mm. Helen would always say to Dolly, he's with us, he's with us. And she would point out the presence of the Lord you know, all around them or whatever was going around. Well, the family was hit by a series of disasters. 
even though the ranch was making、um, quite a bit of money, Alan、um, had these.、Uh, well, one day these bandits came in to steal sheep, and Alan.、Um, Ran after them in this pouring rain, and it was cold, and he wasn't going to let anyone take his sheep. And he chased them off, but he returned to the house with a terrible case of pneumonia. And though he didn't die, it left him permanent disabled. So he left the ranch, and he took the whole family to San Jose, and then to Oakland, where he had to work for others simply to support his family. So he worked on other. Ranches. Then he got another、uh, job offer,、uh, this time in Southern California, to manage a sheep ranch. And so then they moved back to Southern California. Oh, that is just so much travel for that time in history. The Can you effort、yes. needed because these are pack up and go because、right. there are no cars. No, no. We're talking horse and buggy yes, at this point、yes. to move, and we're talking, you know, we're five people. Yeah, moving and all of that readjustment. Interestingly enough. While Dolly was in Oakland during that you know short time, she made two friends. One was Eleanor Olney, and the other one was Evelyn Brown, and they became her best friends.、Uh, they you know went to church together, and they formed this close bond. And even when Dolly lived in Southern California, she wrote to them regularly. And Eleanor and her mother, who went by P. D. Brown, would visit. Um, Los Angeles, and they would always make sure that they saw Dolly. So Dolly was beautiful, and she grew up into this beautiful young woman. She was stylish. She was intelligent. And after high school, she enrolled as a in a teacher training program at an LA college. But after one year there, and she loved school, Dolly's father died, and the family did not have the finances、uh, to support Dolly to finish school. She had to quit. Uh, college, and she took a job、um, at a real estate office. Isn't that interesting to think that of? That is, especially at that in that area at that time, and how things had been growing, so that it's becoming more populated. And, right. Since her childhood, being so remote in San Gabriel. That's right. I, I didn't know, imagine San Gabriel being、yes. undeveloped. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe.、Mm. Um, at 19, she was engaged to her brother's best friend,、uh, man named George. We don't know his last name, but the wedding was called off. And we don't know why. So Ooh, it was just、mystery. a fact, yes. But for the next six years, Dolly lived on a ranch with her siblings. So somehow they had some ranch that they all lived on, and they took care of because they knew about sheep and how to do that. So、um, she was laid off from her job at the real estate office, and out of work with a broken engagement and not enough money to pursue her education. She was really at a crossroads, not knowing what to do. When her friend Evelyn Brown、uh, and her mother P. D. Brown came down for a visit. Now, an interesting thing about P. D. Brown is that she had at one point been、uh, the president of the Occidental Board of Foreign Missionaries, which was associated with the Presbyterian Church, and she had an enthusiasm for missions and for every work of the Lord and for. Uh, especially her kind of her new cause was the YWCA. I mean, she just thought that the YWCA, the youth, youth women's young, young women, young Christian, women's Christian association, yeah, that it was a way of reaching these young women and helping these young women. 
But she had also been a part of another venture. And that was this house uh, that was erected in San Francisco uh, at 920. It was actually not erected. It was bought 920 Sacramento Street to rescue, house, train, and educate young Chinese women who had been brought to the United States on false pretenses and forced into lives of prostitution or even servitude. Right. So they had opened up this mission and she had been part of that. Uh, It was two pastor's wives who had been visiting San Francisco and especially saw Chinatown and saw what was there. And they were so upset that they took it to the foreign mission board and said, we can't allow this. We're Christians. We cannot allow this. What can we do about this? So what they did, these uh, women and working with the foreign missions board, they rented an apartment not too far from Chinatown. And they let the word um, get out that they would take in these young girls. Well, within one year, they had 40 girls. Mm. And they knew that that was just insufficient. What were they going to do? How were they going to help these young women? So the Foreign Missions Occidental Board purchased uh, the house at 920 Sacramento Street. It was a five-story brick building. But they had to put bars on the windows in order to protect the women from getting out and marauders from coming in. It was very, very dangerous. So Evelyn Brown um, said, you've got to talk to my mother. And P.D. Brown said, you don't know what you're supposed to do? Please, please, please go work at the Mission House in San Francisco. Just give it a year. Uh, Dolly could sew. And she said, you could teach the women how to sew. You could teach them English. You would be such an asset. So Dolly not having anything else to do and the fact that her good friends, Eleanor Olney and Evelyn Brown were already volunteering there. She thought, I get to be with my friends. I'll go up there. It's a win-win situation. So Dolly arrived in San Francisco by train, and she found her way to 920 Sacramento Street, which was actually a very, very steep hill. And she recognized that the building was just right at the edge of Chinatown. Chinatown was just like started a block away. I'm so curious to look it up on a map now. Yes. Did you when you were researching? Yes. And it's still there. Really? It's still there. Really? That's really like, know. We'll have to have a day trip. Oh, that's you know, our trip amazing. there. I know. Some of these places that we talk about. I know. We dream of going on research trips. We just haven't pulled it off. No, I want to I do days. this. Maybe someday we will have a Women Worth Knowing road trip. <gasps> Ooh. Wouldn't that be fun? A tour. For you listeners who love this. Dream with us. Yes. <laughs> dream with us. Um, so, uh Dolly, again, had gone there to teach sewing to the girls at the mission house. Now, this is about the turn of the century, right? About 1900 by this This point, is 1980. Not 1980. 1980. Just somewhere around 1980. No, not 1980. I'm sorry, 1880. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Thank okay. you so much. We're 1880. not at the turn of the century no, no, no. yet. No, no, no. Okay. We're like, this is, so she's she just hasn't finished mm-hmm. school because she's only of the tw- funds. Right, she's 25 there. years old. 25, okay. So if she's and born this, in, you know, 1864, 
24. She's 25. So you're in the 1880s. It's okay. like 1885. Okay, that helps. And then her siblings are so much older, it makes sense that she would connect with her girlfriends because it isn't as if the family's no. all right no. in the same no. She's quite a bit younger than yeah. her mm-hmm, than her sister Helen because I think her father was probably quite a few years in New Zealand by himself building up this ranch uh Sheep ranch before, oh, before he set for the family. Him. I see. And so I, the girls were already, you know, older in their early teens when they came and joined them. And then, you know, her brother Alan was born and then Donna Ladina, or as I like to call her, Dolly. <laughs> so um, Dolly, before this time, had had little contact with prostitution at all. Like she had heard about it, but only in whispered tones like this terrible sin. And she didn't think it actually existed in the world. You know, like this was something maybe in Bible times, you know, it was terrible. And she had never, ever met any other ethnicities, like very few ethnicities, you know, kind of secluded in the San Gabriel Valley. So when she gets there and the door is opened by a a furtive Chinese girl. Dolly's a little taken back, and she notices that the girl has bruising on her, and she doesn't know why. So she's led to the office of Margaret Colbertson, who is directing the home. And Margaret said, what you're about to undertake is very dangerous. And then she read her a note that had been placed um at the mission house that day, and it said this, your religion is vain. It costs too much money. By what authority do you rescue girls? If there is any more of this work, there will be a contest and blood may flow. Then we will see who is the strongest. We send you this warning and to all Christian teachers. Wow. And then adding to her warning, Margaret told Dolly that just that day, they had found a pack of dynamite on the stoop of the house. And when they began to inspect the house, they found that there was also dynamite placed in the grates of the windows. So, you know, something was up, but the Lord protected them and they were able to save the house and the girls. So Margaret Culbertson had actually taken over management of the mission house sometime around 1878 and had uh, served there Uh, by this time for 13 years. So the Mission House was started again by the Women's Foreign Missionary Society, Presbyterian Church, and this is their mission, to receive and train girls and women out of slavery and also to prepare women as lay workers in the church. And as I said before, you know, it was started by these um, two women. Originally, Margaret Culbertson had come to California from New York to take a job as a governess. She was unmarried and in her late 40s at that time. She had been told about the mission house and how they were in need of a superintendent. She took the job and she was hired, according to the missions board, because of her fine Christian character, her executive abilities, and good common sense. And immediately she had set the house in order. She established a schedule for all the girls. 7 a.m. wake up, then breakfast and prayers, teaching and chores, scripture reading. The girls were led every Sunday two by two to church. None of the girls were allowed out of the house without Margaret or a trusted escort. 
at the time, the bounty, when Margaret took over the house, the bounty on a young Chinese girl was $600. That in Chinatown, Why? they, Goodness. oh, it, yeah, they would pay $600. And some of these girls who were in the house were as young as eight years old. Mm-hmm. And then also in this house, not only were there, you know, eight-year-old girls, but there were also toddlers and babies because many of the girls mm-hmm. who had come to the home mm-hmm. were pregnant, not knowing who the father, you know, was, yeah. but they were in the home. And so uh, part of the chores was to take care of these little babies that were in the home. It was really dangerous when they even went to church and often police escort to them um, to the church and back. All of them, these girls in this house, had suffered extreme physical and emotional trauma. By the time Dolly arrived at the mission house, as I said, Margaret had been overseeing it for 13 years. And during her time, she had grown wise to the trick, ploys, cruelty, and threats of slave owners. She not only became a at rescuing young girls, sometimes even taking a hatchet with her when she was told of a girl in distress. Yes, knocking down the doors and and threatening uh, the slave owners with that hatchet, but also protecting the girls. She was often tied up in lawsuits because what would happen is these um, slave owners would get a couple and they would have them sign these papers saying that the 10-year-old or the 12-year-old was their daughter and that Margaret Culbertson had kidnapped them and they wanted their daughter back and they would produce fake papers. And so Margaret hired um, this incredible lawyer, uh, I can't remember his name, Horace something, who would help with all of the court cases, but they she was stuck with all this litigation. You know, here she wants to rescue, she wants to train, and she spent quite a bit of her time in the courtroom. Uh, another ploy was a man would produce a fake marriage certificate and say that the young woman was his wife. And again, she had been abducted and, you know, he wanted his wife back. She won the majority of the lawsuits, but she lost some. And the lawsuits that she lost took an emotional toll on her. How could they not? Mm -hmm. She was so, Mm. so saddened. Um, Also, the girls that were there, not every girl was happy to be there. A lot of them didn't want Jesus. They didn't want to hear the Christian religion. Uh, Some uh, preferred their life of prostitution, crazy enough, uh, mainly because they had become addicted to opium. And they wanted the opium. And the lure of the drug of opium was stronger than um, the lure of freedom. And then for some of the girls, being locked up in this house, even though they were being trained, didn't feel like freedom. It felt like seclusion and, you know— and it's kind of like the children of Israel when they begin to think that Egypt was better because they could Mm. eat what they wanted to and, you know, they— were free in their minds uh, to roam and not in the wilderness. So when Dolly met Margaret, she was taken with the fact that Margaret had a kind face, large eyes, and a peaceful countenance, which is amazing considering all that Margaret had been through. Her interpreter uh, was a woman named Chen, uh, Ah Chen, and Ah Cheng was devoted to Culbertson 
and accompanying her on every raid to save a young girl. And she also uh, spoke fluent Chinese. So she was just such an asset to Margaret. And they were constantly together. Um, Dolly's good friends were also at the mission house, Eleanor and Evelyn. And they volunteered their time to nurse and teach the girls. And Dolly set about teaching the young girls to sew. Sewing was a way for the girls to learn a trade and be able to make some money for Mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. The Mission House hoped to teach the girls enough English and skills so that when they were out of harm's way, sometimes because of getting older, sometimes because they married, or sometimes because they were sent to college, a boarding college, so they could, you know, get an education. Um. They, they had these skills. Also, part of the sewing and the skills that they learned, uh, they were able to purchase clothes or uh, special items. Um, it that, was a way to freedom for them. Right. Have a trade. Mm-hmm. Now, it was interesting because Margaret uh, Culbertson also uh, played, you know, matchmaker, right? But she had very, very strict standards for the young men, and they had to pass her scrutiny. And then there was a time of courtship where she observed uh, the young man to make sure it was a love match and that he wasn't threatening the girl. They were never unaccompanied. There was always someone there to make sure uh, that these young girls were safe. After a time, Dolly was not only teaching the girls, but one of her favorite things is while she was teaching the girls, the toddlers would often climb up on Dolly's lap and throw their arms around her and Dolly's favorite thing was the toddlers. I mean, she just mm-hmm. loved the children, and her love for the children endured endeared her to most of the girls there. Most of the girls just fell in love with um, Dolly. Soon, Margaret was taking Dolly with her on some of these rescuers, uh, rescues of these uh, young girls, because nothing phased Dolly. She would go up against any Tong, and, and Tong were the Chinese gangs, right. uh, very dangerous, very yes. violent. And most of them were men who had uh, been, you know, imported to America to work on the railroads and then lost their job and didn't have any way of income. And so the Tongs offered them, you know, here you can have income, you can, you know, work for us. But they were very violent. They were part of those who... Um, kidnapped the young women, guarded the young women, uh, used the young women for prostitution. Dolly also showed this natural aptitude for nursing the young women back to health. Uh, She knew how to treat hepatitis and how to treat uh, measles and mumps and typhus and so many of the uh, diseases, a dysentery that the young girls had contracted because they were um, living in savage, horrid conditions. And Dolly would nurse them back to health, their bruises. And, uh, you know, she she took that on herself. And she had such a gentle nature that, again, the girls just um, leaned into Dolly. You wonder if Dolly's time in isolation on the ranch, moving a lot, they had to be self-sufficient in so many yes, ways. Yes, And she could learn yes. a lot from her older sisters yes. and brother. And then for Dolly to have lost her mom when she was still yes. young, that compassion. Yes. It's so fascinating always when we see the fingerprints of the Lord in a life where he's the author and finisher yes. of our faith, but he's preparing her. Yes. And you realize, again, you know, 
Romans 8.28. Sometimes I think we say it too blithely, but it's so true that all things work together. That if you look back, you find that all of these seeming tragedies were actually sometimes training. You know, I think of Mm. Deuteronomy where God said, I allowed you to suffer hunger and to go through these things. He was training them for life in the promised land so they could possess the land and stay in the land. And, you know, he said, I fed you angels food. That you yes. might not, you might know that man does not live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Yeah. So we've we've got this this time. So Dolly is is gaining acceptance by the girls, but there's one girl who is hostile to her, doesn't like her, doesn't trust her. In fact, for that matter, she really doesn't trust any white woman or any uh, white person at all. And her name is Tyne. Teen is pronounced teen, teen woo. And teen woo would act up like she stole apples and, you know, um, admitted she did. She would purposely um, do a bad job at the sewing class. Just anything to show her hostility. She didn't want to leave the mission house. She just didn't want to cooperate with any of the white people that were running it. Mm. And she... You know, Dolly would smile at her and Dolly decided that by, you know, some way she was going to win Teen Woo over. But I'm going to leave this (gasps) part one (laughs) on that cliffhanger. And then next week, I'm going to tell you a little more about Teen Woo because her story is so fascinating. I love it. And it's all woven together. There's much more for Dolly. Lots of adventures awaiting. And I think this might require two more podcasts because you we're would, here for it. That's right. We don't <laughs> want to miss a bit of Dolly. Yes. So until next week, until you get to hear about Teen Woo and more about Dolly um, Cameron, this is Cheryl Broderson and Robin Gunn. We'll see you then. That's right. We can't wait for next week. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Robin Jones Gunn. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Robin on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at WWK at CCCM.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Robin Jones-Gunn.